Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. We're studying the book of Hebrews together. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention, and they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands. It's always best to hear the Word of God with a Bible open in your hands, and you can never trust a person like me. You want to see it with your own eyes, what it is that's being spoken, and that way it goes in both the ear gate and the eye gate, gets a deeper place in our hearts. And so, and if you don't own a Bible, please make that a gift from the Lord today. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. For he that is God has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it is fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am in the children whom God has given to me. And inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime uh, subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in pertaining to God, in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you so much for being the God that you are, day in and day out, week and month in and out, year in and year out. We thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your strength. Thank you for your patience, Lord. Thank you for your grace just to take so many forms in our lives. We don't pretend to notice all of it or even half of it. But we do. what we do notice, Lord, leaves us in awe of you and of the privilege of being able to be your children and to be your workmanship. Thank you for being our God. And thank you for making a way for that to be possible, Lord. 
And we pray that as we spend our time in your word this morning, for those of us who know you, you would cause this time to give us an even greater appreciation for you and for Jesus this morning. And Lord, for those that stand before you right now that have not yet made Jesus their Savior, we pray that this morning would be the day that something would click for them, that they would recognize the greatness of their need for salvation and the greatness of the Savior that you have sent, Lord, and that today would be the day they would come to know you and enter into the relationship that they've been created for. Lord, we thank you for Don, and we thank you for the miracle we witnessed today, and we just thank you for your goodness in his life. And we continue to ask you, Lord, for your healing power in his life. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us and blessing him and using him today. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. At this point in the writer of the book of Hebrews' letter here, he is going to give his readers essentially a theology lesson. And in chapter 1, he has spoken to his readers, who were Jewish Christians being tempted to uh, depart from their faith in Christ and go back to a works-based uh, salvation, which, of course, is no salvation at all. They were facing great difficulty in their lives. They were paying a tremendous price to stay faithful to the Lord. And they were not only facing that kind of, of trial and difficulty, but then coupled with that were friends and family members, part of the old way, part of the old system that were coming along and trying to lure them back to the old ways. And that's a pretty powerful combination when it occurs in a person's life. And the writer of the book of Hebrews has spoken to them of the fact that Jesus, because of the fact that he is divine, that he is both the Son of God and also God the Son, that he is, as a result of that, superior to angels. And then the writer seems to anticipate the question that these readers would have probably had uh, come up in their minds questions that were probably being asked by their friends and by their family members who were trying to undermine their faith in Christ and to bring them back, as I said, to the old ways. The question would be something like this. Since Jesus became a man in entering into the world, and since he suffered death, how in the world can he be superior to angels who are in the original creation, created superior to man, and who do not die. In other words, isn't Jesus' humanity, the fact that he became flesh, in the words of the Apostle John, was born into human history, isn't that a liability? Why in the world was his incarnation, his coming into the world, necessary? And that's essentially what's being said in verses 5 through 8 of of chapter 2 here. And then the writer in verses 9 through 18, he demonstrates that Jesus was not and is not in any way inferior because of his humanity, but that his incarnation, being born into this world as a man, was necessary. And in doing so, he provides us with this very, very beautiful revelation and portrait of Jesus in a 
wonderful, deeper understanding of him. Notice the reasons, and we'll look at several from this passage for Jesus' incarnation. First of all, in verse 9, Jesus took on flesh and blood that he might taste death, the writer writes. In other words, in order that he might die. So Jesus became a man in order to experience death. He became man for the very purpose of dying so that he could die for our sins. As God, he could not die and that we would be left without a Savior. And so he became a man in order to become the sacrifice for our sins. Now, doubtless, doubtless these Hebrew believers were being questioned again as to why in the world would they ever worship a Savior who had taken on human flesh, number one, and then had suffered and died. And their friends and family members are probably saying something like, what, what kind of a Savior is that? And the writer of the book of Hebrews is answering and saying, that is the only kind of Savior that can save mankind and provide us with the forgiveness of sins. Our salvation required his incarnation. Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 21. He said, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he, that is God, has, Jesus has reconciled, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, speaking of his existence in heaven, the glory of heaven before he came into the world, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that is, in his incarnation, becoming man, that you through his poverty might become rich. And so he came into the world in order to suffer death. And the writer lets us know that he hasn't lost any of his eternal glory or his honor as a result of his incarnation and his death, but was crowned with glory and honor as a result, as he says there in verse 9. And as Paul brings out in Philippians chapter 2, he wrote, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Some of these passages that are so familiar to those of us that have walked with the Lord for a while, sometimes I just pray, Lord, as we read them, may we always read them like the first time, have an impact upon us. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And so whatever their friends and their family members were telling them, this, these J- Jewish Christians were the implications of Jesus' incarnation and of his death. The writer reminds them and us that his incarnation did not cost him one whit of his glory and his honor in heaven. And one day we'll see Jesus, not in the context of this earth, but in the context of the glory of the heaven that he left in order to save us, and it will cause us to love him even more than we already do. Notice also, second, in verse 10, Jesus took on flesh and blood in order to become the captain of our salvation. And when it, when it, uh, the writer refers to him uh, as the captain of our salvation, the word captain can just as easily be translated originator, founder, leader, pioneer. The Greek word is made up of two words, and it literally means the first to go. And archegos, which is the Greek word, is one who begins something in order that others may enter into it. When a, a husband and a wife become married, and now they are a family, they begin that family in order that others might be born into that family. When a city is established by some means of a group of people in order to now develop a city in this particular location, they do that in order that others someday may dwell in it. And through his incarnation and his death, Jesus has provided us with an access to glory to a salvation, to a relationship with God, the glory of heaven forever and ever after this life is through that we could have never, ever entered into on the basis of our own effort. And Jesus could not only become, and Jesus could only become the captain of our salvation, we're told, through suffering. And when it speaks here of the captain of our salvation being made perfect through suffering, it's not saying that Jesus' character or his moral character or makeup in any way uh, or uh, needed to be improved upon or it had nothing to do with Jesus' sinlessness, but it speaks of the necessity of suffering surrounding his death upon the cross in order to purchase our salvation. Jesus was not fully qualified to be our Savior until he died upon that cross. Fully God, fully man, all at the same time. His sinlessness in and of itself does not save us, as wonderful as it is. It simply qualified him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But if he had merely been morally perfect, sinless, and had never gone to the cross, then he would never have been perfected as our Savior. It was only by becoming a man and then dying upon the cross that he was fully qualified to be our Savior. And and so it's only through that that 
the world has gained a perfectly qualified and effective Savior. And again, the writer is saying that Jesus' incarnation and his death, they weren't a reason for doubt concerning him as the Savior of the world, but a reason for faith and a reason for joy. And third, we notice in verses 11 through 13 that Jesus took on flesh and blood in order to make us brethren, not only to provide us with the forgiveness of sins, but also to then bring us into his family, to have a relationship. God could have saved us and said, all right, I've saved you now, but I don't want you closer to me than a 10-foot pole. He could have saved us and never given us the privilege or the blessing of relationship. But Jesus died upon the cross not only to provide us with the forgiveness of sins, but also to make us brethren, to make us the children of God. In other words, we're not only thankful for what he saved us out of, the sin of our past, but we're thankful for what he saved us into. He has saved us into the family of God. That means a lot to all of us, but it means a lot more sometimes to some of us. It meant a lot to me to be born again and then to be born into a relationship with God the Father and then as a part of that to be born into a family spiritually, his family. I remember I have a twin brother by the name of Gabe and one time we were six, seven years old and we spent a number of years in foster homes early in our life and um, <laughs> as miserable as some of those were, um, home was worse even afterwards. And there was this one foster home we were in in the city of Sonoma and the couple was an older couple and they were just doing it for the money clearly. And they had this, all of their children were grown. They had grown children and grandchildren. And every Sunday, they would come over for dinner at the house. And there was a little table that was set up in the kitchen area for Gabe and I to eat in. We ate at that table every single day, never ate one time a meal in that dining room with that family. We never ate one meal with that foster couple, not one meal all year long. They sat in there and ate their meal, and we ate in that room. They had this very large lot that they were on, a huge garden, a big, beautiful pool. And the pool was uh, kind of had a hedge around it, this impenetrable evergreen hedge. And one of the, the, they would have the family over all of the time and they would splash and play in the pool and all of the yelling and screaming and fun and, and shrieks and all of that going on. We never got to dip our toe in that pool the whole year. We were on the other side of that hedge and even when they were gone, we didn't get to get near to that pool. And there was just that constant reminder all day, every day, that entire year, you are in this home, but you are not a part of this family. And they communicated that very, very powerfully. We left that foster home, ended up going, living with my mom and with my stepdad. And it seemed to me, I mean, all the kids can have a different view on it, 
But it seemed to me he communicated every way he could all the way until the day we left that house that we were not his children, Gabe and I, and uh, every way he could communicate it, he did that. And so that was the kind of thing that I grew up with, and no family, no anything like that, and then all of a sudden I get to be a part of the family of God. And I have never, ever known God My one time since I've come to know him in 1980, never once has he ever pushed back in a relationship with me. Never once given an indication that he's ashamed of me or sad that I'm a part of his family or anything like that. Never any rejection, no walls, no hedges, no shunning. I've been in the doghouse a few times, but that was my doing. And I don't say any of that to kind of elicit uh, pity. We all have our childhood, and God works it all together for good. And one of the things that he worked it together for good in my life is it means a lot to me to be a part of God's family and to, be in, and to have that kind of acceptance. So it's a really, really big deal that he, God does that. And the writer of the book of Hebrews recognized that. Paul wrote in kind of this vein of the fact that as Christians, when we're born again, that we're adopted into God's family. In Ephesians chapter 1, he wrote, Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And so the Bible talks about when we are born again as Christians, we become a part of God's family. And it's spoken of in a couple different kinds of ways. This is a family that we are born again into, but it's also a family that we are adopted into. And it takes both of those images to really fully communicate what God has done for us, making us a part of his family. Now, most of us in this room, the families that we became a part of, we were born into that family. And there are advantages and disadvantages to that. One of the things about being born into that family as a child is that uh, they're kind of stuck with you no matter what. So that baby comes out, you know, born into the world and all. Mom and dad take one look at them, and it's like uh, you can't say, are there any others that... Uh, can you show me pictures of a few others that are over in the, you know, the room there? Now, that that's the one that you have, and, and that's the one that uh, you... you uh, born into the world, and so that's the one you have. And so there's that kind of uh, commitment that God has to us as we're born into the family. And then the f- interesting thing about adoption, and kind of one way in which it's a little bit superior uh, to being born into a family, is that in adoption you have the advantage of choice. You can kind of know what you're getting ahead of time. Not completely, but I mean you can know a lot so you say, okay, so I know the child is this big, this kind of background, this size, this kind of aptitude, all these kind of things that you know in the adoption. And when God speaks of us being adopted into his family, God is wanting us to, is communicating to us that he knew what he was getting when he got us, a project. And, and that he's not disappointed. So, oh boy, if I had only known, there's no way I would have. No, he knew everything. And he still adopted us. And so 
God doesn't just simply save us, but he saves us into a family, into his family, and he's made us his children, his sons, and his uh, daughters. And then we notice number 4 in verse 14, that Jesus took on flesh and blood in order to destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, that doesn't mean that when, because of Jesus' being born into the world and then his death and his burial and his resurrection, that the devil has been destroyed in the sense that he has ceased to exist. We know that he hasn't ceased uh, to exist. Uh, The word that's used for destroy there, the Greek word, it means to render inoperative. And so death was introduced into human history through the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And then uh, sin was introduced through, by temptation to, to Eve by the devil in that garden. And, and it's interesting to realize and important to realize that Satan isn't interested supremely in just kind of hassling us as people in this world or even addicting us to sin. His single great desire is for every single human being to get us to live our life in such a way that we end up never putting our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins in order to receive everlasting life from God. And he'll use a lot of different means to do that. He can use sin. He'll he'll, uh, tempt us with addictions and distractions and pride and power and money, whatever. And he he knows personality types and he knows how to come and to uh, appeal to us in all of these different ways. And he's just trying to make a sucker out of us. He is successful when and only ultimately successful if we breathe our last breath in this world and we do that without having made Jesus our Savior. But because of Jesus' incarnation... Coming into the world as death, his burial, and his resurrection, the Bible teaches that mankind has an alternative to following Satan on the trip that he puts in front of us. And so Satan's authority in this world is broken. Every man, every woman, every child in the world, every man, every woman in this room today, we now have the ability to move off of that path that Satan puts us on through sin and all of these other things and to put us on a path that instead of ending in judgment and death, a path that is one that leads and ends in salvation and ultimately into the glory of heaven. And there isn't anything the devil can do to change that. Every human being has the freedom no matter how addicted we are to the sins or the temptation or the pride or the arrogance or the materialism or whatever it is that Satan has got us involved in, and we say, it's too late for me, there's no hope for me, I'll never be able to break out of this. And Jesus was born into the world and died on that cross in order to come into human history and to provide us with a salvation that any of us are free to receive and the devil can't keep a single one of us from doing that. And make sure that you do that. And then fifth, in verses 15 and 16, Jesus took on flesh and blood in order to release us from the bondage of the fear of death. Because as Christians... 
Jesus has made his victory over death to be our victory over death. We don't need to fear death. We can fear death, but we don't need to fear death. We're not supposed to fear death. As Jesus spoke to Martha just minutes before raising her brother Lazarus from the dead there in a graveyard in Bethany 2,000 years ago, and Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And then for our purposes this morning, and whoever lives, that's everybody in the room, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And so death is no longer our enemy but the servant that one day ushers us in from this life and into the glory of heaven once our ministries are over. And it's a great blessing for the Christian to live our lives knowing that death has been conquered by Jesus. We don't have to give it a second thought, but move on about our lives and, and spend our lives focused on day by day the things that has called, called us to, no longer living in the bondage of the fear of death. I don't think that you can truly live life until you have an answer for death and you've been freed from the bondage of death. I've spoken about it before. I remember when I was a, in my 18, 19, 20 years old, and I'm the kind of person... It's just the way that God has made me, and, and uh, it, it's, it has its advantages and it has its disadvantages. But whenever I look at a situation, and here's where we are in the situation, kind of in a timeline, and here's where we are, I can't get my bearings on, on that place on the timeline where I am right now unless I understand the context. And for me, it was very, very important to know I knew I was born into the world and, and I knew that there was death that was going to await me. Like the old saying goes, I mean, death is batting a thousand. Everybody that's born in the world dies. And I realized that even as a person that wasn't walking with the Lord. And so I looked at this and I said, all right, I've got a birth back here and I've got a death waiting for me. But I wasn't ready for that death. I didn't have an answer for that death. And it wasn't like I was dominated by death, thinking about death every day, but I couldn't enjoy what was happening in the daily of my life without solving this over here. Because what does this mean at all if it, all we're going to do is die at the end of this thing and head into who knows what afterwards? And so since I didn't have an answer for death... I didn't, certainly didn't have a, a victory over death. So I began to begin the great postponement movement. And I, so I ran like a maniac. I don't know how many miles I ran a week, but I was, I was a running skeleton. I was running so many miles a week. And I was taking my vitamins and I was eating my bran and I was doing all of these things and all of it in this, just this idea of somehow delaying this gap between where I am right here and death coming because I don't have death figured out. And everybody has at least a dull ache in their mind or in their heart or in their, in their inside when you're living here and there's no solution for death. 
It's there in the subconscious. There's thoughts being given toward it. And then when any considerable thought is given to it, then there's a fear related to death. Death ought to be feared if I do not know why it is a part of the human experience, and that is the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and if I do not have a Savior and a salvation who has conquered death by means of resurrection. And so there is this fear of death that people live in. And when we give our life to Jesus and He comes into our life, His victory over death becomes our victory as well. And one day, when our ministries are over, and only when our ministries are over, do we lay down this tent, this old body. But it isn't death. We never cease to exist even for a moment. We never lose consciousness even for a moment. In a nanosecond, we slip out of the severe limitations of this body and move into the body that God has created for us for eternity. And so Jesus, he, he took on flesh and blood in order to release us from the bondage of fear and of, uh, of the fear of death. And if you have not yet received Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, you are not yet ready for death. He is the only way to prepare for death. D.L. Moody said, Jesus spoiled every funeral he went to. That's a fact of the matter. Every single time a Christian lays their life down, he spoils that for the devil because death is no longer our enemy. It simply is the means by which we are ushered into heaven. Then notice number six. In verse 17, that Jesus took on flesh and blood in order to make propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation is an important one. Sometimes we make fun of, by the way, this is my final point. Um, I don't know why I said it, but just maybe to give you hope and, um, and maybe to have some of you just pull up and say, oh, all right, well, I'll concentrate on this one then because I do want you to concentrate on this one. Sometimes we make fun of, you know, what we consider to be religious terms, sanctification and justification and propitiation, and that these are just, you know, words that only spiritual eggheads know. And uh, that's a a silly kind of immature uh, way to look at um, growing in our understanding of the most important thing in life, and that is God himself understanding God. And, and understanding what he's done for us and the relationship that we have with him. But this word propitiation is one that all of us ought to be familiar with as Christians. And it literally means satisfying payment. And it was used in ancient times to refer to the act of appeasing another person's anger by the offering of a gift to them or a sacrifice. I have sinned against someone. That sin has provoked an anger, a wrath in their life. And so a propitiation is what you would then bring to a person in order to appease or satisfy their wrath and make the relationship all right and to make the relationship healthy 
as, as is intended to be. And as it relates to Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, it is only his sacrifice that makes the full and satisfying payment that's required for the forgiveness of our sins. It is only his sacrifice that makes it consistent for God to be a pardoning God and a forgiving God. And it is only his sacrifice that satisfies God the Father, that satisfies the righteous requirements of heaven. And it is only Jesus' sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God toward my sin, toward our sin. And the wrath of God toward our sin is real. He could not be a holy God. He could not be a loving God. He could not be a gracious God, truly so, if he was indifferent to sin. And this is so important for everyone to understand related to the culture in which we live, in which sin is minimized, it is redefined, less, we consider less and less things to even be sin, and now the minds of our culture don't even, doesn't even take the next step to recognize that I have sinned, and is there a consequence to this sin before a true and a living God? So we live in this culture that tells us that sin means nothing, that it's unimportant. And if there is a God, it shouldn't be important to Him either. And the revelation of the Scripture is, is that our sin produces a wrath in God. It produces a righteous anger in God. It's one thing to... Strip down to your underwear and howl at the moon when you're all alone up in the Sierras. It's another thing to do it in my living room. And every time, because that's going to be an offense to me, to do that in front of me and my family, that will provoke a righteous anger and a wrath in me. And there is a very real sense in which every sin that we have ever committed or ever gets committed in this world is committed in God's living room. This is His creation. It's done in His sight. It is done in the presence of His holiness. And the Bible declares that it is Jesus' death upon the cross alone that allows God to remain just while at the same time justifying sinful man. And as much as God loves man and as much as he longs to have a personal relationship with us and one day bring us into the glory of heaven, he cannot ignore the seriousness of sin because he would be unrighteous if he did so. So what is the means by which a holy God can have a relationship with sinners? And that's the dilemma that God faced. How can a holy God have a relationship with sinners and not become less holy 
for doing so. And as much as I love being saved and forgiven, and as much as I want to one day be in heaven as God is my witness, if it required him to become more like me in terms of sinfulness, or if it occurred at the expense of his nature and his holiness, then I wouldn't want salvation as a part of the human in the human experience and available to us in human history. There had to be, could there be, a way in which God could remain perfectly righteous and holy and still save us. And the beautiful thing is that there is a way, but there is only one way, and that is through the sacrifice of Jesus upon that cross. Because no one can look at Jesus hanging on that cross, covered in his own blood, covered with the spit and the blasphemies of man, and ever conclude that that sin is not serious business with God. That he would send his son into the world to be treated in that way in order for us to be forgiven of our sins. And so it is this beautiful combination of the fact that he sacrifices none of his holiness, and yet he still finds a way to save us. And it's only through a faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins that allows a perfectly righteous and holy God to save ungodly sinners and remain just in doing that. Because on that cross, the penalty of our sin was not casually dismissed, but Jesus bore our sin and he paid the penalty that it required. For he that is the Father made him that is Jesus who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, I want you to know that until you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, God's wrath hangs over you. A righteous, holy, pure wrath that ought to hang over our sin. It's the way that it should be. And that anger is a righteous anger of God. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, and he said, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. God loves you. God loves you. But he cannot ignore your sin. He loves you, but you can't ask him to ignore your sin. You must receive his forgiveness, and you must receive it his way, in a way that satisfies his righteous anger toward sin. And the only way to do that is to put your trust 
in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, to come to a place and time in your life where you say to God, God, I believe your assessment of me as a sinner. I've been less than perfect all my life. And I believe that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you, the very relationship I've been created for. But I also believe what your Bible says and what this man is saying up in front right now, that you love me so much that you sent your son to die on that cross as the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sin. And so this morning, I put my trust in the Savior that you have sent into the world. And I put my trust in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the Savior that you love, that you sent, the only Savior of the world. And I give you my life, God. And when you do that, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit comes into your life and you're born again. And you begin this relationship with God. And it's all there for the asking. And it's all there for the receiving. The writer tells us why Jesus' incarnation was not a liability, but a necessity. He took on flesh and blood in order to die. He took on flesh and blood in order to become the captain of our salvation, to provide us with salvation. He took on flesh and blood in order to make us brethren, his family. He took on flesh and blood in order to destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. He took on flesh and blood in order to release us from the bondage of the fear of death. And Jesus also took on flesh and blood in order to make propitiation for our sins. And I think we would all agree with the writer of the book of Hebrews that whatever anybody else is saying about Jesus and the salvation that is found in him, that his incarnation into this world has not diminished him in any way at all, but given us even greater cause to put our trust and our faith in him, and then having done so, to love him all the more. Let's pray together. Thank you.